Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Play ball! It's 30 with Murdy with your host, Sweeney Murdy. Welcome back, everybody. On this episode of 30 with Murdy, a conversation with my WFAN colleague, Richard Neer. This time it's not about baseball or even about sports. It's about a part of Richard's other life in radio as a DJ and program director in the 1970s and 80s at the legendary rock station in New York, WNEW. And that's where Richard worked 40 years ago, December 8, 1980, the night that John Lennon was killed. To mark the anniversary, I spoke to Richard about his memories of that night in New York City, about the immediate aftermath in a world where news and media didn't move at the same speed they do now. But it still moved because this was John Lennon. It was a Beatle. And it was an enormous emotional punch in New York and around the world. Richard was right there in the middle of it all. For some stories about John Lennon and the night he was murdered 40 years ago, here is my conversation with Richard Neer. So Richard, here's where I want to start with you. Uh, On the night of December 8th, 1980, where were you? Were you working that night? And how did you get the news that the rest of us got on Monday Night Football and eventually, you know, took over, obviously, everybody, what everybody was talking about. Well, it's a very, very interesting story, Sweeney. We used to do at WNEW-FM a Christmas concert, and the proceeds were uh, given to charity, United Cerebral Palsy. So that particular night, we were at a place called Avery Fisher Hall, which is now the David Geffen Hall, right? And uh, the headliner was the Marshall Tucker Band. Uh, So it it was always a really nice, warm and fuzzy occasion. We'd have a big Christmas tree in the lobby and listeners would come in bearing gifts that would be given to uh, underprivileged children. And then Scott Muni would dress up as Santa Claus and come off uh, in at halftime and, uh, you know, with the uh, United Cerebral Palsy kids and you know, we'd make a nice big deal out of it. And it was always a great night. And after the concert, there was a little reception at the uh, green room of Avery Fisher. And it was Warner Brothers Records. And they put out a beautiful spread of food and uh, open bar and all of that. So the concert ended, um, I'm going to say 1030, 1045, something like that. So the entire staff of the radio station went to the green room, ready to celebrate the end of the concert. And Scott Muni came out uh, into the room ashen-faced. Uh, you know, Scott was this big John Wayne macho figure. And I'd never seen him look like this. And I said, what, what's wrong? And he said, 
the radio station called and John Lennon has been shot. And uh, uh, we didn't know the word gobsmacked then, but we were all just, what? Because, you know, in our generation, we, we knew of political assassinations, JFK, Bobby Kennedy, Martin Luther King, and on and on. But for a musician to be assassinated, which essentially it was, it was like, what? It, we couldn't believe it. So we had heard he was shot and we thought, okay, well, people get shot in the leg and the arm, they, they recover. So somebody came to Scott and said, uh, there's another phone call for you. So he went out, came back a couple of minutes later and he said, he's dead. And we just, we're, we're just, you know, John Lennon, here was this guy, a Beatle who had come to live in New York City who had become part of the culture of the city. I mean, he had, uh, I'll, I'll tell you this story later about how he came up and did a two-hour stint with Dennis Elsis on the, on the air. Wow. Uh, Muni wow. had, uh, his firstborn child uh, was in the hospital walking, you know, waiting for his wife to give birth. And there was John Lennon waiting for Sean to be born. So they, they, they sat down and they bonded over, you know, expectant fathers for the first time. So there, there was a link there. So when we heard the news in the green room, we were all just, well, what do we do? Where do we go? And without any direction or order or anything, we all, <clears throat> everyone went to the radio station. Vince Kelsa was on the air and he was playing nothing but Beatles songs and John Lennon songs. And I was, I was program director then. And uh, he said, well, what should we do? And I said, well, I think we should take phone calls. And this was 1980. I mean, we weren't set. We were a music station. Yeah. We weren't set up to do phone calls and we didn't have, you know, seven second delay or any of that. So we, we hastily patched together something where we could do that. And we said, all right, call us. I'm sure you want to talk. I'm sure you want to vent. I'm sure you want to express your feelings. And we basically turned into a talk station overnight and took calls from listeners about their feelings about John and the Beatles and everything that had happened. And, and other people gravitated to the station. I remember Tony Guida, who was on, I think, CBS News at the time, came up and read poetry. Uh, other famous people, and I'm, I'm sorry my memory doesn't tell me who they were, but other musicians, and they came to the station. And it, it sort of became the, the, the nexus of the culture where everybody gravitated to, to, to uh, talk about this terrible, you know, I mean, if, if you grew up and, and I know you're a little bit younger, if you grew up in the sixties, the Beatles were, I mean, you know, it was the British invasion. They changed music just as these four mop tops. And in addition to that, after that initial, you know, three minute records that they made popular and all the hits, then they did Sgt. Pepper's and, and all the other stuff that, that just opened music up, rock music with, with strings and synthesizers and backward tapes and all this innovative stuff that nobody had done before. So it was such an intrinsic part of our lives. And all of us, you know, secretly, well, the Beatles broke up in 1970, but, you know, they, they, they can bury their differences. They can get back together and, and maybe make great music again. And, and obviously, you know, after the, the, the tragedy of the event set in, we thought, 
Well, that'll never happen because John is gone. Back to the night that it happened, you're you know every, you're on the west side. You're not very far from where it happened, right? Was there? Could you as you're leaving there and you're making your way back to the radio station? Could you sense the commotion in the area and in the city about what, how this news was spreading? Not really. Uh, it was maybe four blocks away because it's on. Um, you know, it was on Central Park West and 72nd is where the Dakota was. So we didn't take that route to get back to the station. And there wasn't an extreme amount of activity there. But uh, if if I recall correctly, we sent Marty Martinez, who was our um, news desk assistant type, over to the Dakota to see if he could get news to see what what had happened, who had done this, um, you know, generally just get the, the vibe of, of what was going on there. So he went over there and he would, you know, we had telephones. We didn't have cell phones. You know, he had to find a payphone to call into the station to report on what the sign was like at the Dakota. And TV news, you know, isn't like, you know, right now, I, I remember like the, the Boston Marathon bombing. I remember seeing the news of it come out on Twitter and you check the TV and all of a sudden the news starts jumping on board, CNN, everybody else. And all of a sudden you have around the clock coverage. You know, you're in a much simpler time. I don't think most houses in most places in New York aren't even wired for cable at that point. CNN's only six months old. I don't even know if they have the technological capabilities to jump right to New York city and start reporting there. Uh, how, how did you, advance the story? How did you get more information? What were the kinds of things you were doing to add more information to this quick, sudden story that has a huge headline to it? Now you have to fill in the rest. Well, as you said, there wasn't 24-hour-a-day cable or any anything like that. Um, the good thing that we had, we were, NEWAM was our sister station, any WAM and FM, and they had a full-fledged news operation there. Uh, and the news director, I believe at the time, was Jim Gordon. Uh, you know Jim Gordon from the giant broadcasts and sports and everything else. Jim, Jim, I believe, was, mus- uh, was news director at that time. So we had a, a, a full staff. In fact, that's how we found out about it initially. That's how the call came from the radio station. Because as, as you, the story's been off told, it was a Monday night and it was Monday night football. And back then, Monday night football started at nine o'clock. So I think they were in about the third quarter. And that's when Howard Cosell was the one who broke the news. And I found out subsequently that, um, you know, the truck down there informed, you know, the broadcasters. And Cosell said to Frank Gifford, I don't, I don't know how we're going to weave this into the broadcast you know it's sports uh i don't don't know how to bring this up i don't know you know do we bum the audience out and gifford apparently was the guy who insisted he said howard we've got to do this i'll set it up i'll introduce you i'll say that howard's got some news and howard had had john lennon on his ill-fated you know saturday night live with howard cosell john lennon was on that show and john lennon actually actually had been on monday night football on December 9th, 1974, six years almost to the day, this was December 8th, 1980, six years almost to the day that this had happened. 
So it, it, it fell to Howard to break the news. And the people in the newsroom at NEW heard this and they go, oh, my God, in New York. So they sent a reporter. I think it might have been Mike Geisgrauer or somebody like that up there to cover this story. And these were professional news people who, you know, then could report the nuts and bolts, the police, you know, the, the morgue, all of that stuff, the ambulance, all of the stuff that happened around it. How did the format you know, change back or what happened in the hours after this initial, okay, we're going to play all Beatles music. We're going to take phone calls. How many days or hours did this part last? And and how did that evolve over the next couple of days as the outpouring of grief continued? Well, I'm going on, on memory here and uh, I may be off a bit. I, it, I seem to remember that it was 24 hours of nothing but Beatles songs and John Lennon songs. And then I think gradually, maybe 36 hours in, we started to filter in, you know, the songs on the regular format and we started to do normal shows. But every hour there were sets of Beatles songs and stuff. Um, I, I think it was probably three or four days before we actually got back to normal programming. And then this was a Monday night when this happened radio stations and you know we were in competition with plj and all these other stations somehow we got together and decided that sunday afternoon i think it was at two o'clock there would be dead air there would be silence for uh, uh, five minutes or something along those lines maybe it was three minutes on all the stations us plj abc all, all the stations that played music and we all agreed to that and then afterwards um, we we were trying to come up with a fitting tribute. So we got David Sanctious, who was the original keyboard guy from the E Street Band. And we had direct radio lines to the Capitol Theater in Passaic, New Jersey. And we, we arranged for a piano to be placed on the stage at the Capitol Theater and for David Sanchez to play his version of John Lennon's Across the Universe. And so it, we, we cut right to the Capitol Theater. Here's David. And he played this beautiful, I think it was about nine minute rendition of Across the Universe, soulful jazz. I mean, it was just beautiful. And uh, that was our, our Sunday tribute to John Lennon. And of course, for weeks and months afterwards, it was hard to do a show without talking about what had happened and everything else. Did you develop a relationship? You mentioned Scott Muni. You mentioned Dennis Elsis. Did you develop a relationship with either with John Lennon or any of the other Beatles during the your your decade leading up to that at NEW? I, I can't say relationships because um, I mean it's sort of like you today with ball players. Um, you know, you you talk to them, uh, you interview them. Uh, you're you're closer because you do it every day. Whereas musicians, you know. They'd have an album once a year, and sometimes they'd promote that album, and sometimes if you're John Lennon, you don't need to promote anything. I mean, everybody knows it. So he was a tough interview to get, and what had happened when Walls and Bridges, 1974, was about to come out, and that's how he wound up on the Monday Night Football, you know, John Lennon... When the Beatles broke up, Paul McCartney had the first album, that McCartney album where he played all of the instruments. And then George Harrison came out with All Things Must Pass, which was a triple album set with My Sweet Lord and Apple Scruffs and, you know, all those great songs on that. 
And Lennon's albums weren't as commercial. You know, we were at that time looking for a Beatle album. You know, we wanted it to sound like the Beatles. And he didn't sound like the John Lennon who sang rock and roll with the Beatles. He was doing his own thing. He was very political. He did a song called Working Class Hero, which was, you know, like a folk song and, you know, had, a, had the F word in it even, which some radio stations played and most didn't. So, so John was not as commercially successful as the first two. So when Walls and Bridges came, that was his most uh, Beatlesque, if you will, album to date. He wanted to promote it. So the story goes that uh, Dennis Elsis, a uh, colleague of mine who was music director at WNEW at the time, enormous Beatles fan, and the Capitol Records people, that was a label they were on, knew that. So one, one day, one of the promotion men told Dennis, he said, look, John's recording at the record plant, and I can get you in. I can't get you in the studio where he's recording, but I can get you into the control room. And you can look across the glass and watch John Lennon do his new album. So, Dennis, of course, when and where, I'll be there. Aloha. So, Dennis goes and he's watching. And in the control room is May Peng, who um, was John Lennon's love interest at the time. He was married to Yoko, but uh, they were going through some tough times. And May Peng was his girlfriend, if you want to, whatever you want to call it. So Dennis struck up a conversation with her and he said, look, um, you know, if John would like to come on the radio and talk, I'd love to have him. And she goes, OK, I will, I'll, I'll tell John. And after that, Dennis was introduced to John, shook hands, you know, something we used to do in the days before COVID. And, as, you know, what do you say to John Lennon? Yeah, I love your music. Gee, you're great. Uh, you know, whatever. And then John, thank you very much. You know, one of those things. And Dennis went home and couldn't, you know, he was just thrilled. He was just so excited about what happened. And he thought, well, it was nice. And that's my rush with fame. Well, a couple of days later, he gets a phone call in the music library from May Peng. And she says, yeah, you know, John would like to take you up on your offer to come on your radio show. So Dennis is like, whoa, um, uh, when and she goes well you tell us when it's convenient <laughs> for you and Jen's like it's convenient for me you know <laughs> so Dennis was on Saturday afternoon I was on 10 to 2 Saturday midday and Dennis was on after me Saturday and Sunday both shifts so Dennis said how about four o'clock Saturday afternoon great I'll be there so four o'clock Saturday afternoon in a taxi cab, John and May Ping pull up at the station. There was no security. There was just an elevator operator. And, and we had told them that, you know, somebody famous was coming. We didn't say who. Comes up on the elevator. And Dennis had told me, I was off the air at two, and I usually just went right home. Dennis told me, uh, well, John Lennon's coming at four. And I said, okay, I'm going to find something to do here <laughs> at, at the station until four o'clock. And sure enough, four o'clock, Lennon comes up. Hey, John, Richard Neer. And he acted like he, he knew who I was. And I, that was the, one of those moments, you know, where I don't know if Mickey Mantle said, Sweetie Murder, yeah, I listen to you. <laughs> You'd be like, whoa, all right, I've made it. I'm, I'm you know, my, my life. So uh, great. And we brought him in the studio and uh, he did two hours ad libbed uh, just just was, you know, John had this great sense of humor. 
And, you know, John had gone through some hard times. He, after this, had gotten into heroin and he was a house husband and he was, you know, he drank a lot. He was actually a bad guy for a period of time. Uh, he had what he called the lost weekend when he went to Los Angeles with Harry Nielsen and made a lot of bad scenes and clubs and things like that. But this was before that. And he was at his wittiest, uh, you know, and he'd come up with these non sequiturs that you had to think about that made sense when you thought about it. And for two hours, he was just delightful on the radio. It was wonderful. And that's still available online at different places. You can Google it and find it. And, you know, it was just a, a magical couple of hours on the radio. You know, it seems, too, the way you're describing his arrival there and in reading some of the accounts, rereading some of the accounts from from the day he, that he was killed, he, John Lennon seemed to be very open and accessible to, which seems unfathomable today for anybody who is even one-tenth as famous as John Lennon. Uh, there, you know, you mentioned, you know, no security in the building, no security with him. He just comes walking in. And that's part of the thing that people talked about when discussing, you know, the circumstances around his death is that, you know, maybe this was one of the factors here that he was, you know, even though he's this, you know, more famous than anybody else in the world, you know, to steal his line, more popular than Jesus, right? Um, he was so popular, yet he kind of, maybe that's what he enjoyed about New York. He'd kind of walk around as one of the people in New York and not have to have that air about him. Oh, no question. And and you're right. Um, you know, uh, Mark David Chapman had asked for autographs and, and, and what were then, I guess, selfies. Yeah. Uh, I mean, he, he was very open to that. He would sign autographs. He would shake people's hands, take pictures. Uh, he was very much, he wanted to be a regular guy, and and he acted like it. He didn't put on airs. He didn't act snobby toward people. I mean, of course, everybody does at times, you know, they're interrupted during a meal or something. But and he was that guy. He was just John. And you talk about it being open. I, you, you know, there was an album cover where he and Yoko are naked on the front of it. He did the bed in with her where, you know, they were in bed, uh, you know, and the press would... He, you know, the one thing about John that was pretty, pretty neat is he was a marketing guy. He always knew how to attract attention and he would say things um, to, to get a rise out of people to get publicity and, and not necessarily things he didn't believe, but he tried to be outrageous. He was an iconoclast and, and that would attract attention and get him publicity. And, you know, like I say, he didn't really need to promote things, but he did. Uh, and he learned from Brian Epstein and others, uh, the Beatles' original manager, how to, you know, how to make people aware of who he was and what they were. And he had this this image of being this radical leftist, you know, anti-war, you know, hippie guy. And yet, if you listen to songs like Revolution, you know, if you've shown pictures of Chairman Al, you're not going to make it with anyone anyhow. Uh, you can count me out. He was not that that crazy left wide eyed radical. He was an idealist. I mean, if you listen to Imagine, the song Imagine, you know, Imagine there's no religion, all that kind of stuff. But he was kind of a conservative in a, in a way, which was strange given all this, you know, what he was. 
So you're the program director at WNEW in 1980. So John Lennon puts an album out. I mean, you're going to play it because it's John Lennon and you're a rock and roll station. But I'm curious from, you know, just the, the music perspective of, you know, being a fan and a critic of music, what you remember about the impressions of that album at the time? Because as you had mentioned, his albums really from the outset, from the breakup of the Beatles, were different than everybody else. They weren't these finely uh, crafted pop tunes that everybody was looking for. And they weren't quite the same vein of, um, of let it be and albums like that. Um, but it was, it was different. It was him and Yoko and her songs were radically different and his songs on there. Um, it, it felt like there were things that people were just waiting to hear and he hadn't done anything really like that for a long time. Uh, double fantasy came out. It became a you know, a much bigger hit, obviously, in light of the circumstances that happened. And there are some leftover tracks that came out later in 1983, Milk and Honey. Again, a lot of similar stuff, but I'm curious from a musical perspective, what you thought of them in his catalog as he was about to set off on this new part of his musical career. Well, I, I think at the time, he was almost ashamed of the Beatles. He didn't want to... You know, he and Paul were, were not getting along for a period of time. And then, of course, they, they made up and, you know, they, they realized that, you know, the, the Beatles were, were bigger than the individuals. It was the sum of the parts. It was bigger. Uh, but but he consciously, I don't believe in Beatles. Yeah. I just believe in me, Yoko and me and that song, God Part Two. So so he he just I don't want to say he renounced the Beatles, but he just wanted to be something different. And he was always considered the intellect of the Beatles. McCartney was a heart. McCartney was a love songs and Michelle and yesterday and all of that. And Lennon was, I am the walrus. He, he, he was, uh, you know, the deeper stuff. And when he didn't have McCartney's influence to sweeten it up, so to speak, he went fully in that direction. And to my taste, he went too far in that direction. He became, you know, he did a song like How Do You Sleep, which was just ripping McCartney. The only thing you'd done was yesterday and now you're just another day. Uh, silly love songs. That's all you are. So so he, he was that kind of, he was bitter. And I think it took him a while to Walls and Bridges. And then eventually he did a rock and roll album where he sang a lot of old songs. And, and then, you know, when he got to 1980 and the Double Fantasy record, that's when he kind of found his groove. That's when he found this is the kind of music I'll be making as a now 40-year-old. I mean, this is the, the amazing thing. John Lennon, this October would have been 80 years old. Yeah. So yeah. as a 40-year-old, and, and we didn't have 40-year-old rockers then, you know. It was like, I hope I die before I get old, you know. And, and a lot of them, Jim Morrison, Janice Ian, de- did die before they got old. So a 40-year-old rocker, it was like, well, what do we what do we do at 40? And, you know, Mick Jagger said, I'm not going to be shaking my arse around this, uh, you know, the stage when I'm 50, you know, all that kind of thing. So it was kind of like, okay, here's how I can make music that is relevant and yet, I'm not a teenager talking about cars and girls anymore. Yeah, I remember reading a quote sometime a long ago about, at, at one point, I don't remember if it was John Lennon, but somebody asked what the Beatles would sound like 
if they were still around. And this was sometime in the 70s. And the answer from whoever was asked this question was um, that they would sound a lot like ELO. (laughs) Yes. So I found that interesting because if you move ahead to the 80s, Jeff Lynne has an enormous influence on George Harrison, Tom Petty, and he's really helping put some really amazing records together, and then they all go off and make the Traveling Wilburys thing. But I'm curious what you think, given what you just mentioned about where he finally was in 1980, if you fast forward 10 years, what do his records do you think sound like? Do Does that Jeff Lynne influence invade what he's doing? Does it sound maybe a little bit more like U2, who, you know, they seem to take a lot of influences from John Lennon too, especially that part of their career. Where do you think musically he goes? Well, he ain't going to be doing disco, that's for sure. Um, <laughs> I think uh, I think he probably, ELO is probably a good comparison. You know, it was um, kind of back to the basics, and yet technologically a little f- further advanced. You know, the whole psychedelic thing w- would not be there. Um, I don't think he would be doing throwback stuff. I think he would be doing something original, but not, um, boy, it's hard to say because, you know, I've, I've always believed that great artists have about a decade lifespan where they're great, sure. where, you know, they, they may make music or paint or write books or, or act or anything on a, a level of greatness for 10 years. And then they're still good. They still are better than the average bear, but they're not mind-blowingly great like they were for that 10-year period. And I, I even think that's true of Springsteen, who I love, yeah. Uh, yeah. Where, where his period from Born to Run through uh, Born in the USA, I don't think he'll ever reach that height musically again. Not that his latest stuff isn't good, but it isn't that transcendent stuff. So I I, th- I think Lennon might have just mellowed into a groove, might have mellowed into, yeah, I'll play some things with Ringo, I'll play some things with Paul, George, uh, but it's it's not going to be that, wow, it's the Beatles, you know, hitting us like they did in the 60s. It'll be, yeah, that's comfort food almost. You know, it's funny, I was trying to think of how John Lennon's death compared to certain other people. And I was 10 years old when it happened. I remember, you know, um, being fifth grade in Pennsylvania and, and knowing this news, um, you know, very recently back earlier this year, when Kobe Bryant passed away, uh, you saw a lot of reaction to that because he was, you know, a similar age. Um, but Kobe's career was over as a, as a player. It's not like you were expecting more greatness in that regard. Um, if you think about musicians, even recently, Prince and Whitney Houston, um, I'll even go back to you. You probably have Elvis as a, as a frame of reference, which happened only a few years before that in 1977. Uh, but I, those were different to me uh, as I was kind of thinking this out today because those were accidents of different kinds. This was flat out murder. And you mentioned it earlier. This was This felt more like political uh, issue because of JFK, Martin Luther King. Did any of these things that I mentioned or anything else compare to you, or was the fact that it was just flat-out murder a game-changer? 
Uh, it was. Uh, uh, the others you mentioned, Jimi Hendrix, and, and you, know, they, it, you know, we knew they were into drugs. We knew it was dangerous. Uh, and, and starting with Joplin and Hendrix and Jim Morrison and all, all of them, unfortunately, we kind of knew they were living fast and loose lives and, and they were going to maybe die young. You know, we, we couldn't imagine rockers being in, into their 40s. So, you know, we, we, when it happened, Elvis, of course, had bloated and, you know, had gotten in all the stuff he was in. And all of those deaths were shocks, but they were, well, you know, there, there was that cautionary tale. Well, you live that rock and roll lifestyle. Keith Moon, uh, Brian Jones. Now, this, this is the hazard of, of, of being a rock star. But Lennon had, had come past that. He had gone through that heroin thing. He had gone through the, the period where you, you could, you know, he could be River Phoenix and be found dead on the street someday or John Belushi in a hotel room. Um, you know, he had, he had gotten past that period and he was now a 40-year-old man and a devoted father and, and a guy that was, you know, going to live to 80 years old and crank out a lot of music. And to have that ripped away uh, through no fault of his own, a murder, uh, you know, a violent act uh, was just incomprehensible. You know, if you're, I don't know if you're anything like me, but when somebody asks me about a particular artist, they say, you know, what's your, what's your favorite song? What's your favorite album? The answer changes a lot because, you know, sometimes you're in different parts of your life and you have different feelings, just different moods. And uh, you like so much of a catalog that it's hard to pick a particular favorite. And it really just depends on how they catch you that day. If I'm catching you today and we're at the 40th anniversary of uh, John Lennon's death, do you have a favorite song, favorite album, anything like that? Well, I can't say a song necessarily, but an album, uh, Rubber Soul was my Beatles album. And, you know, part of it might be nostalgia. And I believe it was the first album I ever bought, um, you know, with my own money. I went out and bought it. Uh, But I remember just listening to that over and over and knowing every song on the album and, and, and the harmonies and and. You know, girl, is anybody willing to listen to my story all about the girl who ran away? You know, that kind of thing. Every one of those songs was just so great in its own way. So to me, if I had to pick an album that John participated in, it would be that. I can't say I loved a lot of his solo work. You know, it it was it was good. It was important in that um you know, he, he, he dealt with important subjects. Um, one of the things in, in Beautiful Boy, one of the lines that I, I quote a lot is, life is what happens when you're busy making other plans. You know, that, that, that to me is like, well, that's, that's it. That's, that's the reality of everything. Uh, but, I, you know, I'd have to go back to what was it, 65, 66, when Rubber Soul came out. That was, to me, the best and yeah, there were other great songs and, and Sergeant Pepper was so groundbreaking and Magical Mystery Tour and all that stuff. But uh, to me, that would be the, if I, you know, Desert Island, I, I, I once had to, you know, my, my five favorite albums and that was it for the Beatles. It's funny you mentioned Beautiful Boy because I, I mean, you know, I, I love the, how beautiful the song is. 
And there are times that you can just hear it in his voice, this new place that everybody talks about that he's in in his life, whether it's personally and professionally and everything. It all just kind of comes out there. And, you know, that is, a, that is an amazing line that just is dropped in the middle of it. But his, his tone on that song just speaks to everything about where he's just come from, this dark place, and he's ready to push forward into this beautiful new life. Starting over, you know, that was the lead track on the album. It's just like starting over. And I think that's the way he felt. You know what? I've been through the Beatles. I've been through that decade of, you know, angst and troubled and and wondering. And and don't forget also, he was going through an immigration situation where Nixon wanted him deported. And, and, you know, the the whole Nixon administration just hated the, the Beatles and John Lennon and you know, and I think the hate was equally returned. So he was, uh, you know, they, they wanted him out of the country and he had fallen in love with New York and he did not want to leave. And, you know, finally he prevailed and was allowed to stay. Among the many great documentaries, I think it's called The United States versus John Lennon um, that documents that whole thing that you're talking about as well. A lot of great material we're fortunate to be able to uh, to look back on, whether it's on film, whether it's on record. And uh, there's a lot of great stuff there. Uh, I have I, I was estimating uh, today that we've talked several hundred times uh, in our lives, and this is the first time I've gotten to ask you the questions. You're usually asking me the questions, and at some point along the way, you ask you know you're kind enough to uh, ask me about something I'm working on. Uh, you have, in addition to being able to talk sports and talk music, you're also an accomplished author in both the nonfiction and fiction variety. Uh, what, where is Riley King these days? Where do his adventures take us? And where do we find? When do we find out next? Well, interesting. You should bring that up today, especially because I, I finished a book. You know, books don't come out when you're finished with them. They, you know, you. you edit, you work on the cover work and all that kind of stuff, and you put it out months, sometimes even a year later. And months ago, I finished a book, which I've I've tentatively called A Long December, and that may change. And I was thinking of putting it out around now, and I decided that, you know, for other reasons, I'm going to hold it till probably February. But it takes place, it's a cold case, and it, basically, there was a musician who disappeared the night after John Lennon died. And this was a musician who uh, worked in the Carolinas. He was a singer-songwriter and loved John Lennon. And when he got the news that Lennon had been shot, he got in his VW van with his guitar, and he he drove toward New York City from, from the Carolinas to, you know, pay tribute and to go to Strawberry Fields and all that kind of stuff. And he never made it there. He disappeared. And... This is 40 years later, a, another musician who had toured with this guy comes to Riley King and said, look, uh, I, I ran into this guy's widow and she's working at, uh, at Home Depot as a cashier. She's got no money and she doesn't know what happened to her husband 40 years ago. They never found a body. They never what happened. And he said, I just heard a new record. And it sounds like him. It sounds like his stuff. So either he's alive and recording again under a different name and he left his wife and left his previous, you know, his whole thing, or somebody stole his songs, um, you know, his new songs. So that's where it starts. 
And Riley is, you know, goes back and talks to the cops and, you know, goes through the whole detective thing to find out if the guy's still alive, if he's dead, where those songs came from. And uh, that'll probably be out in February. And again, the, t- the working title is Along December, and it's the ninth Riley King book. And I, I took a character, I, I did a book uh, this past February called Three Chords and the Truth. And it was Jason Black, who was a singer-songwriter and an FBI situation that he had gotten in. So in this book, Riley King and Jason Black get together. And Jason Black is the guy that wants him to investigate uh, the guy's name is Colton Towns, the musician who disappeared. Sounds great. Where do we find this work when it, when it's available? Uh, always Amazon. I mean, uh, I've got a website, richardnear.com, and, you know, the books are always there, and there are links to the books. Uh, in addition, I've, I've, I've gotten into this habit, Sweeney, of writing short stories for the holidays. And I wrote one a couple of years ago called King's Christmas, and it's, uh, you know, a Christmassy thing where Riley goes – to get a Christmas tree and runs into a woman that might be his daughter. Uh, I did uh, one for Thanksgiving just now called Jackson's book, which is free, by the way, you can get it for uh, at Amazon for free. And it's about a, uh, it was inspired actually by a true story. It's about a man who had this incredible life, but was so self-effacing. He never took credit for it. And uh, he wrote a book about his life and he wanted to get it out there. And he, turned to Riley to help him do that and you know and it happens all around Thanksgiving so I've I've been doing that for holidays Um, so I did Christmas I did Thanksgiving Uh, I don't know where I'm going to go next fourth of July I did Halloween spirits in the night about a haunted house that Riley King investigated so you know it's like uh, Dolly Parton's Christmas album I'm doing things like that you uh, while you're describing a long December (laughs) it jogged my mind that one of the things you know one of the great movies recently uh yesterday is a you know has a fantasy element that involves john lennon and where he is now because he didn't become the john lennon that we all know uh but one person did and uh i don't know if you've seen it that's a that's a phenomenal uh fun movie that's been on hbo uh, quite a bit the last few months you know I, i'm embarrassed to admit this sweeney i bought it <laughs> and and I bought the I bought the Blu-ray because I said I, I've got to see this movie, and it's funny. My wife Vicky uh, invited a girlfriend over, a couple of girlfriends over, to see it, and I'm thinking, okay, here I am with four other women. I I can't sit there and watch this movie with four other women, so I said, you know what, you you guys watch it. We have a little media room in the house. I'll just take care of the dog and do something else, and uh, uh, I'll watch it later. Well later and i still haven't watched it and it's like <laughs> really yeah and i've heard so much about it both positive and negative i mean people say well it was great and then at the ending they kind of did something that was weird i don't know i so don't spoil it for me but i i promise uh maybe maybe um the night of uh december 8th which is now or certainly this week this coming week i will I will watch it kind of in tribute to John, but I, I'm so embarrassed that I own it and I haven't watched it. Well, I've actually kind of spoiled part of it for you, but I won't spoil any more. Uh, it is definitely fun and uh, a good way to uh, uh, to just remember all the great music. Uh, Richard, thanks for, I know it was a long time ago and sometimes it's hard to remember things from this long ago. So I appreciate you taking the time. Thank you. And, and, and I'm sure there are people who will listen to your podcast and say, 
nah, he got that wrong. Come on. It was something else. You know, it's, it's, you know, the memory fails after 40 years. In fact, uh, what did I have for dinner? I'm not sure. <laughs> but uh, thank you, Sweeney. Keep up the great work with the Yankees. And I know uh, hopefully you and I will be working together Saturday mornings and Sunday afternoons for many, many years to come. My thanks again to my colleague Richard Neer. You can hear him on the radio every Saturday morning, 6 to 10 a.m. on WFAN and other times as well. And go to Amazon or richardneer.com to purchase any of his books. If you're new here, please head to the archive at radio.com or Apple Podcasts and check out some great recent conversations like the one I had last week with former Major Leaguer Todd Stottlemyre, who's written a new book that is part self-help, part memoir. It's called The Observer, or... Here my chat with Tampa Bay Rays owner Stuart Sternberg on his team's run to the World Series and the impact of 2020 on baseball, both small market and large market. Please make sure to subscribe and review and all that jazz. And until next time, I'm Sweeney Murdy. Thanks for listening. You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai. There's joy in every journey. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law.